Dear March, come in. How glad I am. I looked for you before. Put down your hat. You must have walked. How out of breath you are. Dear March, how are you? And the rest? Did you leave nature well? Oh, March, come right upstairs with me. I have so much to tell. I got your letter and the birds. The maples never knew that you were coming. I declare how red their faces grew. But March, forgive me. And all those hills you left for me to hew. There was no purple suitable. You took it all with you. Who knocks? That April. Lock the door. I will not be pursued. He stayed away a year to call when I'm occupied. But trifles look so trivial as soon as you have come. That blame is just as dear as praise and praise as mere as blame. Welcome to Season by Season with Alexis and Kit, the podcast that celebrates and reforages our connection to nature and the passage of time. It is our hope that through prose, poetry, history, and sound, this podcast will help to inspire your interest in the natural world around us. Together, Kit and I will be sharing observations of the seasons as we see them. We'll be looking through the lens of the 24 seasonal divisions or mini-seasons, as we like to call them, based on the progression of seasons in the traditional Japanese calendar. Now is the season of Keichitsu, or the season when wintering insects awake. Spanning from March 5th to 20th, this season marks the bursting forth of life, beginning with some of its very smallest creatures. Wintering insects begin to emerge from the ground and may even be spotted flitting on the breeze while peach trees burst into bloom. The season of wintering insects awake is preceded by the mini season, snow changes into rain and ice changes into water, and is followed by the mini season spring equinox. Now is the season where the world is holding its breath, or maybe it's full of breath, for on the wind we hear that spring is nearly here. As in every season, there's lots to explore in the sky, in the ground, in the water, and in our lives as we begin our passage into this special period. As capricious winds of March tug at the trees, life is all around with preparations for spring. Let's set out. This mini-season finds the world awake and full of mischief and wonder. And my goodness, we are so close to spring. Romeo Laflamme described this anticipation and joyful frustration well. He wrote, The sun is brilliant in the sky, but its warmth does not reach my face. The cooling rain will feed the grass, but it will not slake my thirst. It is all inches away, but further from me than my dreams. Especially for those of us who live in places where winter does not release its grasp so easily, this frustration and giddiness and joy and sorrow is real. Maybe that's why March has such a reputation for being a capricious month. It just doesn't know what to do with itself. Especially during this mini-season, wintering insects awake. We're just two weeks away from the spring equinox, the official start of spring. Right now is like the orchestra warming up for the concert, which is to follow. And just like the orchestra warming up, doesn't it just send shivers down your spine in anticipation? It's not just the anticipation that's giving me shivers. It's the wind. Ah, yes. March's windy reputation precedes itself. As Lewis Grizzard wrote, springtime is the land awakening. The March winds are the morning yawn. There are many a poem about a windy March. Here's one to start this mini-season off in a good direction. 
The stormy march is come at last, with wind and cloud and changing skies, I hear the rushing of the blast that through the snowy valley flies. Ah, passing few are they who speak, wild stormy month in praise of thee. Yet though thy winds are loud and bleak, thou art a welcome month to me. For thou to northern lands again the glad and glorious sun dost bring, and thou hast joineth the gentle train, and wear'st the gentle name of spring. And in thy reign of blast and storm, smiles many a long bright sunny day, when the changed winds are soft and warm, and heaven puts on the blue of May. This poem gives me an idea. Why don't we follow the wind and see where it takes us? I'm sure we will discover spring all around us through the changing skies. You don't need to ask me twice. Winds of March, we welcome you. There is work for you to do. Work and play and blow all day. Blow the winter wind away. find ourselves in the misty mountains. Those mountains which were so impregnable during cold winter are now beginning to open and awake. Mountains have a mysterious and otherworldly reputation, often inhabited by gods and other deities, sometimes considered sacred spaces or even boundaries to another world. They are also benevolent, looking after the humans living in the valleys below. But there's no denying that just like the month of March, mountains are capricious. The weather can change in a moment. Here is a poem entitled The Mountains in March by Ada A. Mosher, which conjures up this spirit well. In it, you'll hear the word Eurocladon, which is a cyclonic, tempestuous northeast wind that blows in from the Mediterranean, mostly in autumn and winter. Hark! How in impotent rage old Eurocladon scourges the bare-shouldered mountains tonight, while their low laughter doth answer to mock the one wielding the lash. But the lash is so light! Laugh they, as laughed in his slumber old Emir, when the great Norse giant's ponderous mace smote his bare forehead, low muttered the dreamer, Breezes must blow, I feel leaves on my face. So these grim giants, that hoary and battle-proof, guard this old pass, spurn Eurocladon's gaze, laugh him to scorn, while his anger doth but behoof. Sport for these warriors who mock at his rage. Loose are his storm steeds, the snap of his lariat maddens to fury the pulse of their speed. Down the deep gorges, on thunders his chariot, hot in pursuit of each main-tossing steed. What a fierce poem. It brings to mind a good seasonal word, or kigo, March Mountains. But you know... Mountains can also be a bit gentler, more nuanced. That's true. Around this time of year, mountains have their soft side too. There's a great kigo for this in Japanese, yamawarau. Wait, doesn't that mean laughing mountain? Yes, the expression refers to the faint coloring of the mountain vegetation that begins to sprout up in spring. The mountains are laughing, or perhaps smiling at us from on high. Now that I think about it, there's a special type of movement you see on the mountainside in spring. The bare branches with new green tips can really impart a sense of motion, as you still see the structure of the trees and branches against the ground below. This stirring can seem almost giddy, or yes, laughing. Here are a few laughing haiku. 
quarreling water flows down the laughing mountains. The sound of wings flapping as they return to the sky, laughing mountain. The old shoji screens open to let in the light on the day the mountain laughs. It's not just the green haze on the mountains. During this time of year, the mountains may often be full of hazy spring mists. Today the hills put off their haze and stand so green and clear that every peak remote and strange is intimate and near. I can make out the very trees that mass upon their sides and look deep into the white cloud that swift above them rides. But oh, I would not have them stand unveiled by blowing air. Give me the blue, blue mists again that make them far and fair. This brings to mind the fog and mist you often see in Chinese and Japanese landscape paintings. In Shan Shui style artwork, meaning mountain and river style, the foreground would often be in focus, while the background retained vast quantities of impressionistic space. This style was influenced by Taoism, which stressed that humans were but tiny specks in the vast and greater cosmos. Nature has a way of making you feel small and helps you put your problems in perspective. Into each life, a little mist must fall. And speaking of moist, soggy things, this time of year, you'll find this next Kigo anywhere you go. In the mountains, on the road, it's spring mud. Spring mud, now that's a Kigo. You know, when I remember jumping around in mud puddles, I suppose it always tends to be spring in my mind. Makes sense. After all, much of the ground is still bare in the springtime. Here are three haiku for this squishy seasonal word. Through clouds of spring mud, the mountain road. Splashing in the spring mud, you forget your age. The sun sets and the puddles of spring mud turn gold. Something about spring certainly makes you feel young. It gives you a spring in your step, dare I say. <laughs> Very punny. Still, even amid the mud, life is bursting forth. And unlike our previous episode, which didn't cover too many green things growing about, now at last we can say that life is bursting up. This reminds me of one of the earliest growths of spring. As author Winifred Bird writes, Squishy, the spore-bearing shoots of the field horsetail, are among the first vegetations to emerge popping up next to rice paddies and country roads as early as March in many parts of Japan. Among the vibrant greens of early spring, these slender finger-length shoots are easily identified by their rosy tan color and caps covered in hexagonal spore cases. Reproduction is their sole task. Once that is achieved, they wilt and disappear. In their place sprout the plant's photosynthesizing shoots which resemble miniature green bottle brushes and are called sugina in Japanese. Winifred continues, Field horsetail grows throughout Japan as well as much of the Northern Hemisphere, including nearly every U.S. state, making squishy a good wild edible to experiment with, even if you don't live in Japan. Try it sautéed, blanched, or simmered with seasonings and then folded into freshly cooked rice. Listeners, we are very excited to share with you that in our next episode, we will have special guest Winifred Bird to discuss her new book, Eating Wild Japan, by Stonebridge Press, where Tsukushi is just the beginning of edible vegetables of spring. Get ready to discover the delicious world of sansai, or wild edibles. 
Foraging is one of my favorite things, and I loved doing it while I was in Japan. They have a totally unique culture to foraged flavors. I can't wait for our next episode. But you know, it's not just squishy. Life everywhere is stretching up to the sky. And there's a plant in Japanese with just that name, nobiru, to stretch up, to grow, to reach. Let's learn more about it and its cousins in Hiro's Corner. Niniku, Nira, Nobiru. These odoriferous, oh no, fragrant, alliterative edibles that Alexis and Kit have lined up for me this season are all in the onion genus, and they're all thought to have been brought to Japan from China many centuries ago. The first of these three, Niniku, garlic, is the one best known in the United States. A couple of cities in this country are even fighting over which one can call itself the garlic capital of the world, even though when it comes to garlic, China produces more than 80% of the world's production. The US less than 1%, so the fight over the claim is rather silly. Anyway, I have some good memories of this plant. My middle school friend Hiromu was born in Manchuria, the northern region of China that Japan turned into a puppet nation in 1932. As a result, many Japanese immigrated there, all to be sent back to Japan after Japan's defeat a dozen years later. One food the Japanese learned to savor there was mutton, the food of Genghis Khan. Hiromu's mother ran a small restaurant by turning the front section of her rented house, and there she once made a jingitsukan for me mutton grilled on skewers, then dipped into a sauce and eaten, and I never forgot how delicious it was. The strong taste of the meat, but especially the garlic cut into large bits and amply dunked in the shoyu. Garlic is now consumed in Japan rather commonly, but until not long ago it wasn't because of the smell. Oh, the Japanese olfactory sensitivity and all the losses they suffer as a consequence. Instead, the Japanese during the Edo period used garlic largely as a herb, as a medicine, we're told. Uh, they also put up garlic bulbs on their gates to repel diseases, a la the Transylvanians who used garlic to repel the vampires. Perhaps for this reason, garlic wasn't particularly popular as a subject for haiku. Here's the only one I could find from the Edo period. Garlic. In a corner of a farm, they store it. Garlic. In a corner of the farm, they store it. This is by Doko, of whom nothing is known except that he may have been active during the mid-Edo period. This piece makes us wonder about the season of the edible plant. In haiku, the garlic belongs to Chushun, mid-spring, which by the lunar calendar falls on second month, which is in turn often falls in March by the solar calendar. At the time, garlic has just started to sprout green leaves, but its bulbs are not dug and put onto the market until June by the solar calendar. Modern haiku writers bring up garlic more often in their pieces. That's because, some say, Japanese consume it more under the influences of foreign food that have become prevalent since the war, namely Chinese, Korean, French, Italian. Still, Kinoshita Izamu is concerned about the smell of the vegetable. Having gotten used to the garlic odor, I look at night booths. Having gotten used to the garlic odor, I look at night booths. What is this haiku saying? Lexus and Kit lived in Japan, so they know the Japanese set out booths in the evening or in the early morning for festivals and such at the drop of a hat to sell food and sundries. So Kinoshita went to a night market, but because of the pungent smells of garlic pervading the air, he wasn't able to begin to enjoy the sundry food and goods sold in booths until he got used to the odor. Among the better-known haiku writers, here is one by Ida Dakotsu, who lived from 1885 to 1962. Graves, farms, garlic flowers have begun to bloom. Graves, farms, garlic flowers have begun to bloom. This haiku also appears out of season. Dakotsu 
composed this piece in early 1930s, for it appeared in his 1933 collection Reishi, Soulful Mushroom. The second plant, Nira, which is leek or chive, especially of the skinny variety, not the fat one, reminds me of one day more than 50 years ago. The American person who brought me to this country was happy to find Nira growing wildly in Central Park while we were taking a walk with her two daughters. She had lived in Japan for a year. Earlier, the Japanese also seemed to have avoided Nira because of its smell and taste. As a matter of fact, those seeking enlightenment in Zen counted it among the five vegetables not to be eaten, Gokun, because of the smell, and they still do. Modern haiku writers follow suit, mainly talking about the flowers, and if you refer to the flowers, this season changes to summer. Ijima Haruko, who lived from 1921 to 2000, who studied dressmaking in high school in Kyoto, came to haiku late at age 38, and wrote many that some may regard as avant-garde. A single leek stalk, it fans my eyes. A single leek stalk, it fans my eyes. The last item, Nobiru, has a Latin name, Alia Macrostemon, but doesn't seem to have a common English name. Its close relative, called wild garlic, now grows in North America, but since it has deep roots and is hard to get rid of, it's regarded as a troublesome, or so a description reports. In contrast, the Japanese have eaten nobiru since ancient times, naming it in the oldest extant anthologies of poems, manyoshu. Today they regard it as a wild vegetable as well as a herb. Yame, uh, who lived dates unknown, has left the next piece in a 1695 haiku collection, Ariso Umi. A wild boar roots up wild garlic in the underbrush. A wild boar roots up wild garlic in the underbrush. May the pungent flavors of Nira, Niniku, and Nobiru impart a flavorful punch to your seasoning. What's great about Nobiru, Nira, and Niniku, and even Squishy mentioned earlier, is that they are edible. Now begins the season of growing, and perhaps even eating and harvesting things. It isn't just on the farm that you can find fresh flavors of the season, but in nature all around. You know, there's really something to this season. Impatience, movement, briskness, and joy. Like the name this mini-season indicates, it truly is a time of awakening. It's true, if March winds are springtime's yawns, maybe we can think about those yawns coming from all those who are waking up. Literally. Ah, you mean the wintering insects in the name of our mini-season. Yes, their hibernation, it's coming to an end. I realize this is something I've taken for granted in my life in the San Francisco Bay Area. Insects were never a big concern for me. I see them around from time to time, of course, but for the most part, I don't bother them and they don't bother me. It was a huge shock to me when I first moved to Japan in the summer and I saw some absolutely enormous insects. They even sell insects at toy shops for kids. Beetles the size of your palm. The first time I saw one, I was terrified. <laughs> They can get pretty big. But you know, most of those beetles are harmless, at least to us humans. But when summer ended, I remember how quiet things felt when the cicadas stopped singing. We've talked about the songs of insects in a few episodes of this podcast, but it sounds like you're feeling a bit nostalgic for a different season. Well, my point is, when I lived in Japan, I really noticed the insects throughout the year a lot more. And I noticed their absence in the colder months. And I wondered, where did they go? I guess this season, wintering insects awake answers that question. They were all asleep. It's an interesting question. Many insects do hibernate during the wintertime, 
the lady bird beetle, or as we often refer to them, ladybugs, are a good example. They can be seen in fall getting together in large numbers for their upcoming nap through the cold season. And some insects overwinter as larvae, burrowing deep underground to escape the chill. Now that the weather's warming up, we're beginning to see those insects emerge once more, hence the name of this season. And now that I've started paying attention, I think I have noticed that insects seem to be more active now. Even the untroublesome Californian insects are waking up. Did you miss them? You know, maybe I did. Above ground and below ground, the air is ready for insects to stir. The insects are astir in the garden as I'm sweeping. Of course, there are other insects that don't hibernate, but migrate to escape the harsher weather of winter. Monarch butterflies, for instance. Yes, but monarch butterflies are pretty unique in their ability to do so. Author and poet Thomas Wentworth Higginson called monarchs songless wanderers mid the songful birds. But you might see some monarch butterflies yourself, Kit, since they overwinter in California. Late March tends to be the time when monarchs start their migration north. So wherever you are in the United States, keep a lookout for this pretty prelude of spring. Meanwhile, in much of North America, the first butterfly sighting of spring tends to be the morning cloak butterfly. These dark-winged butterflies hibernate in tree cavities during the winter and emerge early in the season when the snow melts. You mentioned that these are often the first butterflies seen this season. In Japan, there's a word for that first butterfly, Hatsucho. Ah, yes. Previously in our January episode, we talked about the importance of firsts. Hatsucho, the first butterfly, carries with it the connotation of joy at the first sighting of these tiny fluttering creatures, as this is a signal that the long winter is finally over. That sounds like a great kigo, or a seasonal word for this season. Yes, butterflies are ubiquitous in springtime. In fact, the word butterfly, on its own, with no other modifiers, is a solidly spring kigo. Those butterflies are waking up too. Wake up, wake up, and become my friend, you sleeping butterfly. This haiku by Basho seems very playful to me. He seems to be encouraging the butterfly to wake up and tell him the poetry the butterfly has learned. Maybe Basho was referencing the famous parable by Chinese poet Chuang Tzu, who dreamed he was a butterfly, but then, upon waking, wondered if perhaps he was a butterfly dreaming he was Chuang Tzu. I like that. And here's another haiku about dreaming butterflies, this time by Chiyojo. The dandelion sometimes wakes the butterfly from its dream. That March wind has caused the dandelion puff to caress the wings of the butterfly, waking it up. Maybe the butterfly is glad to be awake, though. Maybe it's much more pleasant to be a butterfly than to just be a human dreaming of being a butterfly. Hmm, maybe. At the same time, the dandelion mentioned in that haiku also makes a nice seasonal word, don't you think? We get the English word dandelion from the French name for the plant, don de lion, which means lion's tooth. Dandelions have a very cute name in Japanese too, tampopo. My garden, the flowering dandelions have a feeling for poetry. Dandelions have a reputation as weeds, but as we've discussed previously, weeds are really just plants growing where humans don't want them. Dandelions will grow almost anywhere at all, and they grow tenaciously. March is when their flowers first begin blooming in most places, their yellow heads opening wide on sunny days or closing up tight when it's cloudy. When we were children, we used to make wishes on dandelions after those little yellow petals turned into fluffy white tufts. 
blowing our wishes away into the wind with the dandelion seeds. We didn't care if they were considered weeds then. We just cared that they seemed to have magic in them. Now that we're older, we can also appreciate that dandelions are really good for us. Dandelions are high in vitamin C and one of the best sources of beta-carotene. Their leaves are used in salads or can be made into dandelion wine. I'm also a big fan of roasted dandelion root tea, which I sometimes drink as an herbal coffee alternative. If all that weren't enough, they're also just pretty in a simple, unassuming way. It's comforting to see them out and about. Walt Whitman admired the dandelion's simplicity as well. Simple and fresh and fair from winter's close emerging, as if no artifice of fashion, business, politics had ever been. Forth from its sunny nook of sheltered grass, innocent, golden, calm as the dawn, the spring's first dandelion shows its trustful face. Following the wind-blown dandelions will lead us to another buttery yellow flower in bloom around this time of year, Primula veris, or the cowslip primrose. These fragrant wildflowers have also been used to make wine and salads, although I think many gardeners would agree cowslip primroses are more beloved than dandelions. They have just as humble beginnings. It's speculated that they take their English name cowslip from their boggy, slippery habitats, and they were often seen growing in cow pastures. Perhaps among some of that spring mud we talked about before. Still, their cheerful early blooms are a welcome sight, nearly wherever they are found. Their Latin name, Primula Varis, as you mentioned, means little early one of spring. I also love that one of the cowslip's common names is Fairy Cup, a whimsical name for this adorable flower. Though storms may break the primrose on its stalk, though frosts may blight the freshness of its bloom, yet spring's awakening breath will woo the earth to feed with kindliest dews its favorite flower that blooms in mossy bank and darksome glens, lighting the greenwood with its sunny smile. This poem by Percy Bysshe Shelley suggests that spring's awakening breath will woo the earth to feed with kindliest dew its favorite flower. Quite the compliment to the little primrose. From humble beginnings arise beautiful things. Speaking of spring's awakening breath, where is this next gust taking us? We've arrived at the seaside. Ooh, and just in time, too. The weather is finally warm enough to enjoy a day at the beach again. There's a good kigo for this in Japanese, Haru no Umi, which just means the sea in spring. The sense of this seasonal word is one of joy and pleasure. In spring, the seaside is brisk and pleasant, and folks are happy to spend a day beachcombing along the sandy shores. In Japan, it's also the beginning of the season of shiohigari, or gathering at low tide. Specifically, gathering clams and other shellfish. You spoke of foraging wild things. I wonder if this might be seen as something similar. Hmm, it's a bit different, but I can see the connection. Finding those shellfish among the sand can be thrilling. And there's something deeply satisfying in a tasty dinner of your day's finds. Anyone can hunt for shellfish at low tide, and in fact, this is a cherished activity for many families in Japan. Gathering clams is so popular that news channels often report on clam digging conditions throughout the season. Chiojo wrote a lovely haiku about this seaside pastime. Everything I pick up is alive, ebb tide. We can really get a sense of liveliness of a spring day at the beach. There's another culinary delight from the sea in season now, the hotaru ika, 
or firefly squid, emerges from the deep sea to lay its eggs in shallow waters in the springtime. The firefly squid gets its name from its bioluminescence. It emits a bluish light that can illuminate the water around it. Especially on dark evenings, this can be an impressive sight and has attracted tourists to the firefly squid's spawning site from all over the world. They're considered to be delicious, and spring is the time to enjoy them, as reflected in this haiku. Firefly squid. The sea of Japan finally shows waves of springtime. That wind blowing in from the sea certainly is bracing, isn't it? I may be ready to head indoors. Oh, but Alexis, you wouldn't want to miss the spring sunset, would you? Well, it's true, spring sunsets are lovely. But can't we just enjoy them just as well, looking out a window? Well, I suppose so. And don't worry, the warmer evenings will be here before you know it. Until then, though, we can enjoy spring sunsets. As the days are gradually getting longer, you'll notice there's a certain change of light in those sunsets that can make them particularly beautiful. Speaking of light in spring, you've reminded me once again of a poem. A light exists in spring not present on the year at any other period, when March is scarcely here. A color stands abroad on solitary fields that science cannot overtake, but human nature feels. It waits upon the lawn. It shows the furthest tree upon the furthest slope. You know it almost speaks to you. Then, as horizons step or noons report away, without the formula of sound it passes, and we stay. A quality of loss affecting our content, as trade had suddenly encroached upon a sacrament. Emily Dickinson certainly seems to be onto something here. She seems to be suggesting that spring's light is felt in the heart, perhaps felt even more than seen, which I find beautiful. But why only in spring? I wonder if it's perhaps all this awakening we've been discussing. The light shines differently after the darkness of winter. Ah, ah yes, that makes sense, of course. And though Emily mentions that human nature feels what science cannot overtake. You know, the science around light is pretty fascinating. In particular, I've always been interested in light refraction. Ah, I think I know what you want to talk about next. Rainbows. I saw the lovely arch of rainbow span the sky, the gold sun burning as the rain swept by. In bright ring solitude, the showery foliage shone. One lovely moment, and the bow was gone. Rainbows are lovely, what can I say? They're created by combining water droplets and sunlight together. Each water droplet acts as a prism, refracting the light as that hits it. The sunlight's white light is broken down into its component colors, and the back of the raindrop reflects those colors each at a different angle. Refracting and reflecting more light can create more rainbows. And drizzly March can be a good time of year to see them. Always a good reason to be looking to the skies. E'en now, full many a blossom spell with fragrance fills the shade, and verge your clothes, each grassy dell, in brighter tints arrayed. But mark, what arch of varied hue from heaven to earth is bowed. Haste, ere it vanish, haste to view the rainbow in the cloud. How bright its glory! There behold the emerald's verdant rays, the topaz blends its hues of gold with the deep ruby's blaze. There's another reason I think rainbows tend to be associated with marsh weather, particularly here in the United States. It's the association with St. Patrick's Day, which falls every year on March 17th. Ah yes, that's true. 
There are similar tales across European folklore, but here in America we're particularly familiar with the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Of course, since the rainbow is just an image that retreats as you approach it, it's impossible to reach the end of the rainbow, which makes it a perfect place for those clever leprechauns to hide their gold. Mm. Leprechauns in Irish folklore were tricksters, associated with fairies of an especially cranky variety. The good-natured variety of leprechauns are an entirely Americanized creation. A lot of what we now associate with St. Patrick's Day has come directly from the American celebrations of it. Irish immigrants in America created many of the modern traditions. For example, wearing green on St. Patrick's Day was first popularized in America as an homage to the Emerald Isle and the color of spring. Bar hopping and carousing on St. Patrick's Day is also distinctly American. That's because the original Irish holiday was first and foremost a religious holiday. In fact, as recently as the 1970s, Irish law mandated that pubs had to be closed on St. Patrick's Day. St. Patrick was the patron saint of Ireland and its national apostle. March 17th was the anniversary of his death in the 5th century. This day falls during the Christian season of Lent, but the Lenten prohibitions against the consumption of meat would be waived for this day, and people would feast on the traditional meal of cabbage and Irish bacon. Corned beef is the Americanized traditional food instead of Irish bacon. Even though St. Patrick's Day has evolved to mean many things to different people, it's now celebrated by people of all backgrounds around the world. One of the biggest St. Patrick's Day parades I've ever attended was actually in Tokyo, Japan. There was so much green beer consumed on that day, I mostly remember it as a fun time. <laughs> well, wherever we are in the world, St. Patrick's Day is a day for celebrating Irish culture and enjoying festive food and drink. Listeners, we've shared a special St. Patrick's Day-inspired recipe on our website. Head on over to nourishingjapan.com to check it out. And let's share its host to Ireland. There's an isle, a green isle, set in the sea. Here's to the saint that blessed it, and here's to the billows wild and free that for centuries have caressed it. It's been a while since we talked about calendars on Season by Season, but really, that's what our show is based around how we measure the passage of time, re-examining our traditions connected and associated with nature. Yes, we use the traditional Japanese calendar as the structure for this podcast, but there are all sorts of calendars out there. The Celtic, the Hebrew, the Ethiopian, or even ancient Greek. No matter the season, there are endings and beginnings. For example, we in the United States might not consider this season the middle of March, as a time of endings and partings. Yet in Japan, this is the season when many young people end one journey and begin to prepare for the next. It's graduation season. In the cold days of early spring, students throughout Japan bid farewell. But there's a silver lining. The new school year begins in April when the cherry blossoms bloom forth. Therefore, as one journey ends, another also begins. Let's listen to the lyrics of this traditional graduation song, Aogeba Totoshi, which was selected for the Nihon no Uta Hyakusen, or 100 Songs from Japan, by the Agency of Cultural Affairs and the National Congress of Parents and Teachers Association. Before we listen, let's take a moment to reflect on what we're hearing. The first verse refers to the kindness of my teacher and is sung from student to teacher as a way of thanking the instructor as they part. The second verse is sung to the students' friends, encouraging them in their future endeavors and reaffirming their friendship. The final verse seems to be addressed to the school itself, the building and the area around it, full of memories from the years spent there. Taken all together, it is a song commemorating all the things that we love and loved from our school days. When I behold it, how precious it is! the kindness of my teacher. 
In the bower of teaching, already many years have passed, when I think back how swift they seem, these years and months. And now, let us part. Lo, farewell. To another we were harmonious, these everyday kindnesses. Even after we part, my friend, do not forget them. Stand tall and make your name, my friend. Strive on. And now let us part. Lo, farewell. From the window of learning, familiar after many days and evenings, there was the lamplight of fireflies, the white of snow. Not a moment we will forget of these departed months and years. And now let us part. Lo, farewell. This song makes me nostalgic for a time gone by. But if there's one thing you can count on, it's change. In addition to it being graduation season in Japan, it's also the end of the fiscal calendar in Japan, the time of year when the books are consolidated to begin anew. Speaking of consolidation, Alexis, that brings to mind, this is our 12th episode of Season by Season. Believe it or not, we've come a full year through the cycle of seasons and halfway through our journey of the 24 seasons. Wow. How slow, yet quick, this year went. How about we revisit episode one of Season by Season, entitled Clear and Bright, which covered the mini-season from April 4th to 18th and first aired in 2020. Our segment on cherry blossoms seems a good way to look back as we look forward to the seasons ahead. Here in the San Francisco Bay Area, we are enjoying the sight of sunshiny daffodils brightening our hillside. Such a cheerful flower. It's one of spring's early arrivals that I look forward to each year. We've also been enjoying many blooming trees, especially apple blossoms. I'm a little embarrassed to admit it, but you know, when we were younger, I used to mistake apple blossoms for cherry blossoms. <laughs> I, I remember that. But you know, they do look similar. And after all, of course I wanted to be surrounded by cherry blossoms. The falling of cherry blossoms is one of the most famous motifs of springtime in Japan. One that we came across constantly when we first began to immerse ourselves in Japanese culture. Cherry blossoms, sakura, have a special significance in Japan. The delicate pink flowers are symbolic of the fleeting nature of life. Once the cherry blossoms bloom, they are beautiful for just a short while before they begin to fall. I remember cherry blossom season as being very lively in Japan. Cherry blossom viewing parties can be very lively indeed. These parties are called hanami and can consist of eating, drinking, even barbecuing and singing karaoke. It's time spent socializing with colleagues, friends, and family. The school year starts in April in Japan as well, too. So it's an important time in the lives of students and students at heart. My goodness, how nervous we sound, but also full of hope. I don't think that sentiment has changed. It hasn't just been a journey through the season, but our journey as podcast hosts, too. Thank you, everyone, for being a part of it. And we're only halfway through the 24 seasons of Japan. Well then, let the good times blossom. Thank you for joining us as we explore the movement of life all around us in Wintering Insects Awake. With the first butterfly and butterbur spotted, we know that spring is here. This episode, some of the Kigo or seasonal words featured were March winds, March mountains, laughing mountains, spring mud, spring mists, wintering insects, dandelions, cowslip primroses, clam digging, eating shellfish, firefly squid, nira, niniku, and nobiru, the first butterfly of spring, spring sunsets, rainbows, tsukushi, St. Patrick's Day, graduation day in Japan, and season by season's one year anniversary. Listeners, what are some other seasonal words you associate with this mini season? Email your Kigo to nourishingjapan.com or feel free to leave a comment on our Facebook page. On this episode, you heard poems and prose by Emily Dickinson, 
William Cullen Bryant, Ada A. Mosher, Katsuo Sekimori, Akira Horimai, Nojimae Shijin, Jesse Bell Rittenhouse, Nishijima Bakunan, Ryote Fukuda, Kimiko Kato, Ishi Rogetsu, Shimada Shige, Basho, Chiojo, Shiki, Walt Whitman, Percy Bish Shelley, Takaki Susuno Ie, Walter De Lamar, Felicia Hemmins, and Jean Blewett. The poems featured on this podcast are in the public domain or with permission from their creators. We would like to thank our poetry readers for this episode Phil Callan, Porfirio Figueroa, Alexander Michelson, Chris Whitaker, Gail Wine, Alan Coyne, Carl Smith, Cyrus Lanthier, Bruce Kaplan, and Nikki. We would also like to extend a special thanks once again to Hiroaki Sato for his contribution segment, Hiro's Corner, narrated by Ed von Adderkass. Be sure to check out the season-by-season companion playlist on Spotify. Our playlists bring the spirit and sound of our 24 mini-seasons to enjoy all season long. From Japanese folk music to acid jazz and crooners, this playlist will delight and surprise you. Just search for Season by Season Podcast on Spotify, or visit our website, nourishingjapan.com. The winds whistle through the greening branches. To quote the poem, Craving for Spring by D.H. Lawrence, Let it be spring. Come, bubbling, urging, surging tide of sap. Come, rush of creation. Come, life. May you too find March winds awakening you to the beauty of spring. See you in another season. <laughs>